true crime people. Welcome to Mommy's Crime Time. It's Jenny, and I wanted to talk to you guys about our Missing Monday. And I know I'm a little behind. I was sick, and I don't think you guys would have wanted to hear my voice at that point because it was not attractive. But for Missing Monday this week, I wanted to talk about a case that, in my opinion, is so much like the Gannon case and we all know about the developments of the Gannon case. Of course I didn't know about these developments at the time that I decided to do this one but still regardless this case is one that should be covered. It's one that deserves justice. It kills me that we have not gotten justice or any answers for this family and the case I want to talk about is 10 years old guys I mean it's not a new case but it's a case that it it bothers me and it bothers a lot of other people and if you haven't heard about this case it goes back to June 4th of 2010 in Portland Oregon it was a sweet very very sweet seven-year-old little boy who went to a science fair and he was so excited about his project that he had made about frogs. He had this nice, you know, big poster board behind him like all of our kids do when they have a science fair project and he was so proud and unfortunately that picture of him that morning was the very last picture ever taken of him and what happened to him after that picture, we will never know unless someone comes clean. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the sweet little boy, Kyron Harmon. Where is he? Where did he go? It makes no sense. People don't just disappear into thin air. And apparently that is what happened here. And it doesn't make sense because it's a lot like the Gannon case where there's just no evidence at, you know, that we knew of. There's just like, he's just gone. And of course, the very last person to see him, guys, guess who? His stepmom. So I guess I'll start out by just kind of outlining it, talking about what happened, and then we can start talking about a little bit more of the BS that led up to this. So <clears throat> who was Kyron? He was, as I said, a very, very sweet seven-year-old little boy. He had glasses. He was described as being very, very sweet, very caring. He, you know, loved his mother, Desiree, very, very, very much. And unfortunately, he had to go live with his dad and his stepmother because of health issues that his mom was going through. So I'll give you a little bit of background, but first I want to kind of tell you about that morning. It was that morning of June 4, 2010, when Kyron went to school with his science fair project that he was so excited about and he was taken to school by his stepmom terry she was there with him she walked him in she took a picture of him and then after he dropped off that science fair project he was never seen again he was actually reported absent from school that day now terry says that they parted ways and she saw him you know run down the hallway to his class and you know she went on about her day that afternoon, Terry and her husband, which is Kane, Kane, and that is the father of Kyron, waited at the bus stop, and he did not get off the bus. So they called the school, and then they were told he was absent, and that led to him being reported missing. So 
Both of the parents, Desiree and Kane, now believe that the stepmom, Terry, is responsible for what happened, but no one was ever charged with the disappearance of Kyron. To this day, 10 years later, there have been no arrests. It's important to tell you guys that whatever I do say, you know, no one has been charged. So I'm going to talk about facts. I'm going to talk about my opinion. But as I said, no one has ever been charged with this case. Now, Kyron's parents, Desiree and Kane, divorced before he was born. And Kane, his dad, was already with Terry basically when Kyron was born. So this has been his stepmother since the moment he came into this world. Now, as I said, Desiree got very, very sick with kidney failure. So he had to go move in with his dad and stepmom, and she had to go to Canada for life-saving treatments. He was two years old when he went to live with his dad and stepmom. This doesn't mean that Desiree was not part of his life because she definitely still was. She was a very, very active part of his life. But at this point, her health was important. She had to get this treatment. So she had to put this first. It doesn't mean she didn't care about him. It doesn't mean that she didn't still talk to him and keep in contact. She was just in a very, you know, a life-threatening situation. So it is important to say that, you know, Kane and Terry had an affair. And Desiree found out about this affair when she was like seven to eight months pregnant. So Kane and Terry had been together longer than they, or at least Terry would like to say. Now, Kane did have a very demanding job. And Terry had these aspirations that she wanted to be, you know, a school superintendent. She had gotten a master's degree, all these things. She wanted to, you know, be really big in education. But, you know, instead she was going to be there as a parent to help take care of Kyron because he was only two years old when they got him. Now, it's been said by Desiree that Terry would, you know, ask Desiree to pick him up often. Or she would even offer to drive these four hours to bring him to her. Which, you know, is definitely striking and, you know, odd because it's a four-hour drive from where she lived to where Desiree lived. And why would you want to do that? Like, it it came off to Desiree as her kind of wanting to get rid of Kyron, just kind of, you know, didn't want to deal with him. She even wanted Kane to give him back to Desiree. But Kane didn't want to. And Desiree wasn't financially or physically ready yet to, at that point, take him back. I mean, you got to remember, she had been going through this life-changing and life-threatening sickness. She wasn't exactly in a position to take him back at that point. Although she was still active in his life, she, she had to heal on her own before she could be a parent fully to him and give him everything that he needed. Terry would say that he cried all the time, wanting his mom... And a lot of this started to worry Desiree, you know, that something might have been going on with Terry for for Kyron to be so upset, for him, you know, to cry so much for his mom. It, it worried her. Now, Terry did also have a drinking problem. She was even pulled over by police with her oldest son in the car with her for a DUI and reckless endangerment for the child. So she had, you know, she definitely had her fair share of demons there. She acted almost as if she was bothered by having Kyron and then she starts drinking a lot and to a point where she's getting pulled over with another child in the car that's that's definitely not okay so according to her it was about 7 30 in the morning when her and Kyron left for school on June 4th and by 8 a.m they had arrived at the school now at 8 15 another person did see Terry and Kyron at the school and of course she did take that photo of Kyron in front of his project so we know that he was there at least for a little while 
at 9 a.m., a student had said that he saw Kyron by a door. But, of course, you know, students can be confused. Students can say things. But this was something that kind of contradicted things in a way. Terry claims that she was going down the hall, or he was going down the hallway. He was almost to his class door. And, you know, she figured he was fine. He was going on to his class, so she left and went on about her day. And this is why, you know, it's, it's important to bring up, you know, I know a lot of us get bothered by the schools calling us when our child misses a day. We're like, oh my gosh, they missed a day. You know, do you have to call me? But this is the kind of thing that kind of brings it into light that it is important because had this phone call been made, maybe somebody would have noticed beforehand that he was missing rather than it being when he did not get off the bus that afternoon. But I'm going to tell you more about that shortly and why they didn't call and say he was absent. So, like I said, Terry and Kane and his little baby sister went to the bus stop and he did not get off the bus. That's when they reported him missing. Terry says that after she left the school, she went grocery shopping. It's probably around 9, 12. And they didn't have the medication that she needed for her daughter. Her infant daughter had an ear infection and she was in pain. So she had been driving around trying to soothe her daughter so she ended up going to another grocery store and getting the medication. So from about 10 a.m. to about 11.40 a.m., she was driving around just trying to soothe her daughter's earache. Of course, we've all done that. We all know when our child's fussy or something's wrong that sometimes a car ride does calm them down. But the actions after this are very alarming to me because if my child's sick, if my child has an earache or I can't get them to take a nap and I have to drive them to calm them down, I definitely wouldn't be taking them somewhere else. And I'm about to get to that. No one saw Terry during that time that she was supposedly driving around, but she did decide that she should go to the gym and work out. Go to the gym and work out, guys. Her toddler is inconsolable to a point that you're having to drive her around to soothe her, but you decide to take her to the gym and leave her in the daycare at the gym for 45 minutes. Who does that? I mean, no one in their right mind would do that. At 11.40 a.m., she checked into that daycare at the gym for her to work out. But your kid's sick. Why in the hell would you take your child, who you're having to drive around, to a daycare at a gym for you to work out? You should have took her home. I honestly feel like this whole gym thing was basically an alibi. So at 1.21 p.m., she posted the photo of Kyron from the science fair and again, to me, this is kind of like an alibi thing. Like, okay, he was at school. I dropped him off. He had a science fair project. I'm a caring, loving mom. But it still just bugs me that she had this giant gap in time that she was unaccounted for when she was supposedly driving, but yet she took her child to a daycare in a gym. And then she comes home and posts this photo. Typically, if I do something with my kids or I'm at their school. I post that photo right away. I don't wait till way later, but hey, what do I know? Maybe that was her norm. So around 3.46 is when they called the school after he did not get off the bus. By 4.33, law enforcement had already came to the home and the school. But the sad thing about this is, is Kyron had already been missing like eight hours at that point. Law enforcement was already, you know, way behind. You know, the first few hours are the most critical, but unfortunately, since he was not reported missing, Eight hours had already gone by. By 8.09, like, the school searches had begun. And by 10.40, there were searches at the school and home. And the entire surrounding area had been searched. And they didn't find anything. 
And it's hard to believe that a seven-year-old child could just completely disappear without anything. Because had he been kidnapped or taken by someone, you think that you may have found his book bag, you may have found a shoe, you may have found clothing, you would have found something, but there was literally nothing. The last thing was when Terry said she's seen him walking to his class. And this is alarming too, and we'll get to that in a moment. They did interview all of the classmates and teachers to see who saw him, where was he. But what came to be kind of very obvious is that the layout of the school did not fit Terry's story. He was only about 50 feet from his classroom when Terry claimed she'd seen him last. How could he go missing in 50 feet? If you were watching him go to his class, I mean, I imagine a hallway with students everywhere. How could he go missing in such a short distance? Who could have snatched him that fast? It just, it doesn't add up. Especially when Kyron was not a very independent child. His mom, Desiree, described him as, you know, I don't want to say clingy, but he was, he has like separation anxiety. If, if she got, you know, far away from him, he would panic. He could only see about three feet in front of himself. So he did not like to be left alone and he had to be around someone he knew. He was not one to wonder. He was not one to go off on his own. He would have had to be with someone. And that's very important because some children wonder, some children are you know prone to wanting to explore, but that was not Chiron. He was not like that at all. So the fact that he would have went missing in 50 feet within a few minutes, and he was not one to wonder, that does not go together because he would not have thought, okay, well, my stepmom doesn't see me now, so I'm going to sneak out this way. He wouldn't have done that. He didn't have enough space or time to do that. This is why this case is so alarming. Now, Desiree didn't even find out he was missing until she got a call from the school. Terry nor Kane called Desiree to tell her that the child was missing. Why would you not call? This is alarming to me, too, that Terry did not call his mother and say, look, Kyron didn't get off the bus. We don't know where he is. But they didn't do that. So this caused Desiree to immediately suspect Terry. Now, later, Kane does begin to question Terry, but in the beginning, you know, of course, he wanted to believe his wife. He wanted to believe that she was honest and she wouldn't hurt his child. But Desiree knew from the beginning that something did not add up about this and something just was not right. We'll be right back. Welcome back, guys. So we were just talking about how Desiree immediately suspected Terry and felt like something wasn't right. But we had talked about earlier how the school never called and said that Kyron missed school that day. And if you have a child in elementary school, you know it's pretty much the norm that if your child misses school, they call you and say, hey, so-and-so wasn't here today. Are they okay? But come to find out, the teacher said that Terry had actually told her that Kyron would not be to school that day, that he was going to be absent because he had a doctor's appointment. Now, this is alarming. And of course, Terry kind of shuffles this off by saying, you know, well, I didn't say what Friday he wasn't going to be at school. Of course, if you said my child's not going to be at school on Friday, it would be that Friday. He was only a second grader at Skyline Elementary. There's no reason why the teacher would have mixed up her days. Obviously, Terry had told the teacher this to try to cover her track in that way. And obviously, it backfired when the teacher remembered that she had said this. Now, she says she waved at him 
from like the top of the stairs and all of this, but that just, it just does not fit. It doesn't make sense with the layout of the school. Was she on the stairs? Was she not on the stairs? If she was, how could she see? If she wasn't on the stairs, how could she see him going down the hall? It did not add up. And this was very alarming to Desiree because it did not make sense that the last place she saw him was going to his class when it was impossible for where Terry said she was standing. Of course, both biological parents, Desiree and Kane, are frantically searching for Chiron. They have no idea where he is. They're in a panic. They are worried to death. The school was searched extensively just in case he was inside. Had he gotten trapped somewhere? You know, was he stuck in a closet? They looked everywhere and he was nowhere to be found. As I said, there was no traces or evidence. No backpack, no clothing, no footprints, no nothing. And how can a child be abducted in a school? Because I don't understand how just some random person could come into the school and abduct a child. Especially a child who was shy, reserved, and would probably have yelled had someone tried to take them. How would it not be seen? But according to Terry, she left him right there by his class. It had to happen there. It wasn't possible that she saw him or she said she did, or that he was taken in such a short period of time. The National Guard and the FBI decided to join in on the search. Pacific Northwest search and rescue came to help. And the next day, it became a nationwide story. There were over 50 detectives that interviewed over 300 students and parents. And again, nothing's coming out because no one saw anything. Terry decided to take it into her own hands to print a thousand flyers with his photo, clothing, and description. This led to no leads. On June 9th, there was a press conference where they determined that he was a missing and endangered child, not just, you know, possible runaway or, uh, you know, he's missing and endangered. He needs to be found. But Terry started having some pretty strange behavior that definitely raised some red flags. Of course, if your child's missing or your stepchild, but a child that you have been a part of raising since birth, you should be completely shattered. You should be unable to function. You should be unable to sleep. You should just be a basket case. But instead, Terry decides to post on Facebook talking about how she's going to hit the gym the next day. Who in their right mind would be talking about hitting the gym days after their child has gone missing? Apparently, Terry would. She claimed that law enforcement told them to go on about the regular lifestyle and the regular routines. How could you even consider going on about a regular routine when a child is missing? A child that went missing on your watch. How could you not be riddled with guilt and anxiety, fear, worry, but instead you're going to go to the gym? Definitely not normal. So Terry takes a polygraph and guess what, guys? She fails it. Fails it. The case then ends up shifting from a missing and danger child to a criminal case. Now the biological parents, Kane and Desiree, pass polygraph tests. The police decide that they want to start kind of picking apart Terry's whereabouts. And she had this mysterious ping on Sabi Island. Why was she pinging there? Was she there? This is an island area. There's a lot of water. There's a bridge. It's not a like, populated area. Honestly, as horrible as it sounds to say, it would be a good place to hide a body. But Terry, of course, says she was never there. The ping must be incorrect. Of course, right? Because your phone just pings incorrectly all the time. Nonetheless, divers searched the lake and the ground, and they had people all around the island. They searched and searched, but they found nothing. 
The police weren't calling Terry a suspect or a person of interest, but they were definitely putting her info out to the media. At this point, she agrees to take a second polygraph, but she walked out before she took it. She waited about eight to ten days before she went back, and guess what? She failed it again. It's one thing to fail one poly, but to fail two? I mean, come on, guys. You would be, just be dumb to go back for the second one. But a lot of times, people that are narcissistic or psychopaths, they honestly think that they can pass this. They think they're smarter than the test. Now, after this, things pretty much went to shit at the home of the Harmon family. I mean, it was not that great in the Harmon home. It was... At this point, I believe that Kane really started to realize that Terry knew more and Terry was involved. He ended up leaving with his daughter. He called the police on Terry and he said they needed to distance, distance himself until Kyron was found. Now, Terry, of course, claims that she failed the poly because they asked her if Kyron was in the truck with her that day. And of course, he was in the truck with her that day. She took him to school. So she was nitpicking the questions and trying to make it out, you know, as if the questions had different meanings or different answers. And this is why she failed. Terry's own father, her own father, told People Magazine there was a 50-50 chance that she did it. What kind of person are you that your own father would say that there was a 50-50 chance you did it? Most parents would say, there's no way. My child would never do this. My child would never harm a child. But no, a 50-50 chance? And at this point, Terry became very argumentative and defensive. And Kay noticed this, and it was very worrying because why would you be defensive if you had nothing to hide? So by the end of June, Kane filed a restraining order against Terry. And this restraining order said she was to stay away from not only Kane, but also their daughter. At this point, some more funny things started to come to light. Like the gardener that took care of the yard at Terry and Kane's home came forward and said that Terry had approached him in January of 2010 and offered him $10,000 to kill Kane. She told him to make it look like a mugging gone wrong. Of course, Terry decides to say, look, he was infatuated with me. He came to see me on Mother's Day. He kissed me on my ear. But she didn't tell her husband about this. Why? Because she never told Kane that she hired a landscaper. Instead of telling her husband that she had hired a landscaper, she was pretending that her 15-year-old son, James, was the one doing the yard work. Who does this? She would rather pay someone and lie to her husband than make her own child go outside and cut the grass? This is insane to me. Obviously, she has a major issue with lying. Now, she lied to the media several times, pretending like their marriage was okay, it wasn't in trouble, everything was fine, when obviously it was in trouble. So at this point, she decides she should probably just go ahead and lie, lawyer up with a high defense attorney, you know, high profile attorney, you know, because that's what innocent people do, right? Now, she was really big about writing, and she kept, she, was, she kept all kinds of writings and emails, and she talked about things and kept notes. And she wrote that the night before Kyron went missing, that she and Kane were up until about 3 a.m. screaming and fighting, and that she had decided to file for divorce. Of course, Kane denies this claim entirely. She emailed this to a friend, but according to Kane, this never happened. That morning was a normal morning where he got up for work and everything just as normal. So then Terry began to blame the media for the poor portrayal of her. It was the media's fault, right? Of course, it wasn't her fault. Now, Desiree claims that she had read emails between Terry and her friends saying that she hated Kyron. 
it's almost as if she had some sort of resentment towards him. Was it enough resentment to get rid of him? Definitely seems that way. Of course, the sheriff's department started to see that there were some very suspicious things about Terry, and they started to dig on it. And one of the things that they found was quite alarming. Kyron had not been missing long at all, and Terry began an affair with one of her own husband Kane's high school friends. This affair was ridiculous to me because, as I said earlier, if you're concerned about your child who is missing that you love and you're worried, the last thing that would be on your mind would be an affair or having sex with someone. You would be so enthralled and just entwined in what was going on with your child, where they were, were they okay, were they cold, did they have their coat, you know, what was happening to them. Why would you be considering an affair? This shows that she had no emotional attachment at all towards Kyron. She wasn't worried about him. She was worried about herself. Now, she claimed this affair was just for sex. It was nothing serious. She just, you know, was just looking for somebody to talk to, you know, and some comfort. But the sexting, guys, it does not say that. It does not look comfort to me if you read the text messages between her and this guy. It is disgusting. Definitely not the kind of behavior that I would imagine 26 days after your son, stepson, whatever you want to say, but the child you've been raising since birth, 26 days later, you're sending naked photos of yourself to another man? This isn't normal. This isn't the behavior of a mom who is concerned about her child. This is the behavior of a narcissist who got rid of what they saw as a problem. It's obvious that she had an emotional detachment because her, her behavior was just not consistent. And it's similar to what we saw with Letitia Stock when it came to Gannon, where she had no attachment to him. She showed no, no real, you know, concern. It was just more of a defensive and everyone owes me an apology. And this is exactly how Terry acted. It wasn't about the well-being of the child. It was about what everyone owed her because she was being treated wrong. She claimed that Kane was unfaithful before Kyron went missing, so this whole affair was basically a revenge thing. She just wanted to get back at him. Again, why are you worrying about getting back at your husband when your child is missing? This should be the last thing on your mind. You should not care about revenge. You shouldn't be sexting. You should be spending every moment of every day trying to figure out where your child is. You should be so worried that you can't function, let alone be sleeping with another man. It doesn't make sense how you would just be having a revenge affair. And then if you're going to that length that you would have a revenge affair, which is a pretty big lit. I mean, that's a pretty big leap, okay? How do we know that you wouldn't seek revenge in other ways? Like hurting Kyron to get back at Kane? It's definitely questionable. And of course, Terry's stories all had many, many, many inconsistencies. She lied about that fight she had with Kane the night before. She lied about where she last saw Kyron that day. And she changed her story later saying, oh, it was in the hallway and on the stairs. The truth doesn't change. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember it and it stays the same. And at this point is when Desiree began to speak out against Terry. This was the most costly missing person case in Oregon history. And of all people, the one person who could have cleared it up refused to talk and instead made herself a victim. She wanted to talk about how she was so smeared, she could not get a job, and she would never be able to be an educator, and no one wanted to hire her. 
She even went so far once as to allegedly threaten to kidnap their daughter and was put in contempt of court by Cain. She then was put in a room for a third poly, and she stormed out. This was on July 9, 2010. So the police decide, you know, maybe we can get some information in a different way. So they approach Rudy Sanchez, who was that landscaper that Terry allegedly offered to pay $10,000 to kill her husband, and they tried to get him to get Terry to make some incriminating statements. Got him to wear a wire, but of course that attempt failed. And Terry called 911. She got furious. And she offered to, you know, she, she's got so angry. She decides that she's going to turn this around. She's going to say, you know what? I didn't ask him to kill my husband. He offered to kill Cain. He said he would kill him so we could be together. This is alarming because earlier she said this conversation never took place. She never talked to him about killing her husband. But now she's saying, you know what? He told me he killed my husband. This is a way of basically admitting this conversation took place. Whether he said it or she said it, she's still admitting that this conversation took place. And if she was a caring wife and mother, why would she not have called 911 then? Why would she have just kept this and swept it underneath the rug? So she basically now she's like, okay, well, I'm just going to blame this landscaper for everything. She even goes so far as trying to blame him for Kyra's disappearance, saying basically since she refused his advances, he must have done it. But obviously, it becomes very clear that she has nothing but a pattern of lies. And she lies consistency about everything, even minor things. About six weeks later, she moved out of the family home that she shared with Kane and then with her parents. And this is when some more things start to kind of come to light about a friend of hers, Didi Spicer. Didi even moved in with Terry for 11 days after Kane left. And Didi became someone kind of, I don't want to say a person of interest because law enforcement said there was no person of interest. But definitely a person that was pretty much looked at heavily because of her whereabouts on the day that Kyra went missing. The law, law enforcement even released a flyer with her photo on it as they had done Terry to see if they could drum up some information. It's known that around 9 a.m. Didi was doing work on a garden for a man. About two hours later this owner comes out and he finds the work's only half done and she's not there. She's not answering her phone but her car is still at the homeowner's residence. Where did she go? Why is she not accounted for? 90 minutes, 11.30 to 1 p.m. She's not at that residence and no one can reach her. And it's very, very important to note, guys, that this is the exact same time frame that Terry was unaccounted for. Was Dee Dee with Terry? Was she helping Terry with something? What was really going on? Because the story just does not add up. We'll be right back. Welcome back, guys. Back to that friend of Terry, Dee Dee. Now, Dee Dee claims that she never left her job site. And this directly contradicts the homeowner's statement that he looked for her, he called her name out, he tried calling her phone, and he could not find her. She says that she was definitely not with Terry that day. She consents to searches. But there was some speculation that she had helped Terry purchase an untraceable cell phone. She ends up being subpoenaed by the grand jury. Of course, Terry denies ever having this untraceable phone. And Dee Dee says that Terry would never do anything like this. She would never be responsible for this child, you know, going missing. So, of course, she lawyers up as well. She's only a witness. Why does she need to lawyer up? 
So at this point, Terry decides she should go to the media. media. And she claims that there was this white truck in a parking lot of the school and there was a man sitting inside of this white F-150. And that man was actually seen the day before at 7-Eleven asking where the nearest school was. He was pacing. He was acting strange. The cashier called the cops. But this was unfounded by the police. There was no record of a call and there was no man found on camera. It sounds like another one of Terry's lies. It's another one of her attempts to deflect focus off of her and try to put it on someone else. It wasn't me. It was this person. If it wasn't this person, it had to be this mystery person that we don't know about. Just deflecting wherever she can. Now, school witnesses says there was a strange man in a white truck at the school that day. But the white truck they were in was Terry's truck. Now, could this man have actually been Dee Dee because Dee Dee had short red hair? I mean, maybe she was wearing a hat. Could it have been Dee Dee or was there a mystery man? Desiree decided to file a $10 million civil suit against Terry. And Terry's attorney basically says this is just a witch hunt. This attorney that Terry had, his retainer was two hundred dollars to $350,000. She was a stay-at-home mom, a school volunteer, and a part-time substitute teacher. How in the hell could she afford this attorney? Luckily, this attorney finally told her to shut up and not talk anymore, and he would speak for her, which is probably a good thing because she kept putting her foot in her mouth. So the grand jury, de- I, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the grand jury convenes to determine whether or not they're going to indict Terry. And of course, we'll get to that in a minute, but they also have this divorce going on between Kane and Terry. And of course, the three main topics are, you know, how is she affording this lawyer? And then there's this issue of the contempt. She wanted to postpone the contempt for like two years. Basically, this was protect her from a deposition, protect her from giving out any information. There wouldn't be any discovery. She wouldn't have to speak under oath. And this would save her from making any incriminating statements related to the Kyron case. So after all this happens, Kane ultimately dropped the contempt charges. He didn't give a reason, but the reason could be, one, you know, he couldn't afford his attorney Or why would you worry so much about this contempt charge when the spotlight should be on finding Kyron? Of course, Terry's attorney then wants to delay the divorce, and Kane refuses this. It's pretty obvious that she's doing anything she can to keep from having to testify under oath or give any documents over. Why? Because all of these documents could be made public, and then those documents could harm Terry when it came to Kyron being missing. The judge decides he's going to continue this case from October to January. That way the parties have time to cool off. A year after the disappearance of Kyron, the task force disbands. But they tell everyone that a detective will continue the case, but the FBI pulled out. May 31st, 2012 is when Desiree filed that civil suit against Terry for $10 million for custodial interference. Now, during this suit, Dee Dee Spicer is supposed to testify, but what does she do? She pleads the fifth 142 times. 142 times, guys. If you have nothing to hide, you hide nothing. Why couldn't she talk? What was she hiding? On July 30th, Desiree ended up dropping her civil suit because there just wasn't enough evidence to prove that Terry did it. I mean, even though we all know that Terry was somehow involved in this or she did it in some way or shape or form but there's just not enough evidence to prove that and that is what's heartbreaking about this now Kane would permit for the sheriff's office to search his home the backyard 
They didn't want outside agencies there, and there was never a full excavation of the backyard. So, could Kyron be there? Probably not. Whatever happened to him, wherever he was put, was somewhere where they were hoping he wouldn't be found. Now, Desiree, she keeps his case alive. She refuses to ever give up on her son. It doesn't matter how long it's been, 10 years, 200 years, she's not going to give up on her child. She gets out there herself and searches. She knows in her heart and believes that Terry has all the answers to where and what happened to Kyron. As do I. I believe that Terry did something to Kyron. I believe it was out of spite. It was a revengeful thing. I believe that it was a way to get back at Cain. And I truly, truly feel like she did this because she resented him. And for whatever reason, she took it all out on him rather than being an adult and doing the right thing and say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Obviously, if she was already having an affair on Cain, she didn't care about him enough anyway. So why did she have to hurt this innocent child? There is no one else. There is no other possibility. No one else could have snatched this child in 50 feet. No one else could have taken him. He wouldn't go with just anyone. It's clear and it's obvious that she did something to this child. And by the actions of Dee Dee Spicer, it really looks like she was complacent. She knew what was going on. Maybe she helped. Whatever the case may be, you don't plead the fifth 142 times unless you have something to hide. Terry constantly deflects questions. She has to put the blame on someone else or make negative claims about mom or dad, which is exactly what Letitia Stout did. Anytime they got the heat on her, she would jump over to, well, Gannon's real mom or Gannon's dad did this or, you know, blah, blah, blah. But she would never just let it be what she did wrong. No accountability. Cannot accept responsibility for her actions. This is something that is a very, very, very huge trait with narcissists. They are always the victim. They do no wrong. And everyone's blaming them for something they didn't do. They're innocent. When in this case, Terry is the furthest damn thing from innocent in the world. She knows what happened to Kyron. Either she did it herself, she did it with Dee Dee, or she had someone help her, but she knows where he is. And it's time for her to stop hiding, stop being fake, stop pretending like she's a victim, and be honest and tell what she did to this child. It's not fair. It's not fair to his family. It's definitely not damn fair to him. She lied from day one. She even told friends that she met Kate when he hired her to take care of Kyron. She misled their own friends just to save face. Although she was the one that began this affair with him while his wife was pregnant. She obviously couldn't handle the heat in Oregon, so she moved to California. She's made a couple attempts to change her name, which have failed. But she finally got that new name when she remarried. Her name is now Terry Vasquez. She re remarried in 2018. and She also decided she wanted to go on Nightline in 2016 and talk about some odd behavior she allegedly witnessed from Kyron weeks before his disappearance, implying that he had been touched sexually. Again, deflection. When it comes down to the hard questions, when it comes down to talking about what she did wrong or what she may know, she's going to deflect it or she's going to find an excuse. It is a travesty. It is horrible there is no justice for this child. She already has no contact with her daughter. And God, I hope she never gets any because she is a very toxic person. And she knows where Kyron is. She knows what happened to him. And rather than being an adult, rather than being honest, rather than honoring his memory, she chooses to basically defame his family, talk as 
horrible as she can about his mother, about his father, about everyone, make herself out to be a victim when she is the furthest thing from that. If you have any information, guys, if you know anything about what may have happened to Kyron, if you have ever seen something, if you heard something somewhere, please call. Let them know what you know. Call Portland, Oregon PD. Let them know what's going on because he deserves justice. He deserves to be found. He deserves peace. His family deserves peace. I can't imagine being a mother and not knowing where my child is. It's not fair. Please, if you have any information, call. Please share this. Please go online. Look him up. Look at the pictures of his age progression and how he would look now. If you've seen anyone that looks like him, call. No tip is worthless. If you have any information that may be beneficial, call it in. What's the worst you could do? A tip is better than no tip. I ask you all to pray for Desiree and for Cain and for all these people that still search for Chiron that have never given up on him. And I ask you, please, please never give up on Chiron. Let's all pray that one day he comes home.